Well, amen. If you would find John chapter 18, our sermon text is in the first 11 verses this morning. It's so good to be with you and to open his book together. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. I'll read it and then we'll ask God for help. Hear the word of the living God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost no one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not Drink it, the word of the Lord. Let us ask God for his help. Father, we do pray this morning that by the Holy Spirit, you would lead us into the very heart of hearts of our beloved Jesus, and that you would cause us to see new folds of his love for us and to behold new facets of his glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we enter into John 18 and this narrative, we we enter into the climax of the gospel. As Jordan mentioned last week, John's main point, everything he's been building up to in his narrative, his testimony, is the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And in the narrative before us, we we really stand on the precipice of redemptive history. In these 11 verses, we find a garden, a valley, the disciples, a betrayer, a band of soldiers, weapons, lanterns, torches. And in the center of it all, the center of it all is Jesus. John refers to him throughout his gospel in many ways, the word, the creator, the true light, the bread of life, the good shepherd, the lamb of God, the light of the world, the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection and the life, and the I am. Jesus is the son of God, and the word did become flesh and dwelt among humanity, revealing his glory, and all the while he was explaining God to us. It's from John 1. 
Well, as we enter John 18 with Jesus, we should also revisit the reason John wrote his account, which is often revisited week to week here. It's found in John 20, verse 30. John tells us his very purpose for why he writes his narrative, his testimony, his eyewitness account. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, John says, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John's testimony is for your, for my eternal good. That's why he wrote this. Well, this past week, I returned home from a a work trip. I was in Richmond, Virginia. I don't fly and travel a lot, but when I do fly, I like sitting in the window seat because I love to watch the, the ground, the tarmac as you take off and you're on the ground level and as you get higher and higher, you see more landscape, a different view, a bigger picture, roads connecting cities and the Mississippi River and then over the mountains. You get to see farms that are perfectly surveyed in, in tight lines that you can't see when you're on the ground. And then when you come back down on the descent to land, all of those things start coming into more detail and people look like people and not ants and buildings look like buildings and not squares. Well, this is a lot like John's gospel. He begins his gospel above ground in John 1 in the heavens. In the beginning was the word. And then he descends with his narrative and then he takes off again all to see really the glorious heights of God's purposes in redemption and the glory of Jesus. And all of this testimony from John so that his readers would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing his readers would have life in his name. So with that purpose in view, not far from our consideration of the text, what does John want us to see today in these verses about Jesus. What is it about the glory of Christ displayed in his arrest that he wants us to behold? Well, with God's help, I want us to look together at these 11 verses, and I think we'll see three very specific ways that Christ is revealed to us in his betrayal and arrest. I'll name these here, and then we'll work through them together. Number one, Jesus is in complete control. Number two, Jesus protects his own. And number three, Jesus willingly obeys his Father. So number one, Jesus is in complete control, and we could say in parentheses, of every detail. Well, as Jordan mentioned last week in his overview sermon of these chapters, which I would commend to you to go back and listen, including grabbing that article he referenced, the geography in our narrative is full of meaning. And as he said, contains a crimson thread from John back to the Old Testament through that Old Testament to Genesis that we see a garden and a crimson thread that runs all the way through to the end to see another garden paradise. John wants us to think about these things. He does it on purpose. He writes with a purpose. There's another geographical marker in our passage this morning. It's there in verse 1. It points us to a shepherd king. It points us to a man of righteousness. It points us to one who had heavy afflictions and great suffering and a sorrowful heart. 
who crossed this book of Kidron while being pursued by his enemies, which included his betrayer, who was a friend to him but full of evil ambitions and sought to do him harm and to pull him down off of his throne. There is a shepherd king who crossed the Kidron, quote, going up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. So when you hear the word Kidron, does it make you think of King David, who was hunted by a son named Absalom, who was filled with hate for his father and wanted the kingdom for himself? Or do you think of Ahithophel, who was a counselor to David, who betrayed his friend and joined Absalom in pursuit? David mentions this grief and being betrayed in Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus quoting this in the upper room discourse. Well, that's from 2, Psalm 5, 2 Samuel 15. Now fast forward to John 18, and we behold the true and better David crossing that brook of Kidron into the garden. That same brook that was stained with the blood of sacrificial lambs. You could imagine the smell of death lingering. Jesus being pursued by Satan himself who was looking for an opportune time, and his, Ahithophel, none other than Judas. Again, Jesus quoting that in the upper room. This shepherd king, this righteous king, this king of kings crosses the Kidron, retracing the steps of David, climbing the Mount of Olives on his way to crush the head of Absalom, Satan through his willing sacrificial death, suffering outside the gate as an offering for sin, once for all, bringing death to death, and with his resurrection, life everlasting and a new garden for his people. So when you hear Kidron, do you hear those things? Well, as we enter John 18, we are in the final hours of our Lord's passion narrative. It's Friday, likely just past midnight, Jesus would be crucified around the third hour, so that's mid-morning on Friday. He hung on a cross for six hours. So we're not far. We're not far. The purposes of God are getting more palpable to Jesus, and the reality of death presses in on him. Gethsemane meaning oil press, the olive trees there. As D.A. Carson notes in his helpful commentary, Jesus now sets in motion the departure of which he has been speaking about. Now read with me, chapter 18, verse 2. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. We also know from other accounts that this garden, there at the foot of the Mount of Olives, was a familiar place of our Lord and his people, his disciples. After the supper in the upper room, Luke tells us that he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. Judas was already gone, but he would have known the place. And it says in our passage, he would have known Jesus' habits by walking with him those years. And it is in this dark of night, this private garden away from Jerusalem and the possibility of a mob response to Jesus' arrest that Judas will betray Jesus with a kiss. John doesn't tell us that, but we know from 
the other gospels. So it's a calculated effort by Judas. It's calculated. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew tells us that from that time on, from when he took the silver, he looked for a good opportunity to betray him. And here, Judas, possessed by the ruler of the domain of darkness, seeks to betray the light of the world. It says there in our passage, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Picture the scene. Jordan mentioned it last week. A cohort, which was usually a 1,000 soldiers, 750-foot soldiers, 250 cavalry. Most believe that in this scenario it was somewhere maybe in the 200 to 600 range. But think about that. I didn't do the count this morning, I don't know, 200 people maybe, maybe 100, so three times all of you or twice all of you standing in front with lanterns, torches, and weapons against one man led by Judas the betrayer. That's, that's a pretty ominous scene. So if we, if, we, if we don't know anything else about who Jesus is, we only have this narrative so far, He's outnumbered, Jesus is outgunned, Judas knows the habits of Jesus and he couldn't have planned it more perfectly from his vantage point. He drew up his plan with the captors and it's been executed perfectly. Judas, the Roman cohort, the officers of the chief priests that we read about in our narrative, they couldn't be more in control of the situation from their vantage point. Now, kids, help me think about this. Maybe I should have picked a different game, but has anybody in the room ever played Capture the Flag? Kids, you can just raise your hand. Okay. If you haven't played Capture the Flag, ask your parents after the service to explain it to you. But it's kind of a military game where you have two sides. You're trying to get the other side's flag. Now, think about this. After church today, what if we went outside? Let's just say there was a forest in Uptown, which would be cool. And there was 11 of you, okay? So I'm thinking Jesus and his disciples, there's 11 of you that are playing. And the other team has 600 kids or 200, or let's just say 100. So 11 to 200. So no matter how good you are, you're probably not winning. Now, some of you may say, you don't know how good I am. But if we're honest with ourselves, 11 versus 200, 600 the 600 are going to be in control. Now, for all of us, think about an arrest. That's pretty much the most not in control situation that you can be in. I can imagine a feeling of helplessness, being handcuffed and led where you don't want to go, right? The rights that you have are not the rights that you had. You're not in control anymore. So here's Jesus in the narrative, non-assuming, no weapons, the same as he had been in public teaching, he was there. This little band of brothers, his disciples, weak and fearful, probably anxious with the experience. The numbers were certainly not in Jesus' favor. So we ask, who's in control? Look at verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who is betraying him, was standing with them. 
So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Well, Jesus is not a helpless victim in our narrative. We should tremble in awe at who is in control. John wants us to know that it was not Judas, it was not the cohort, it was not the officers, it was Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, the I am is in perfect and full control. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. John wants us to behold again the glory of Christ in this moment as we look upon him as the willing, initiating, submitting King of Kings as he walks in lockstep with foreknowledge of the things that were about to take place. Now, Jesus could have slipped away from the crowd like he did in John 5, and he didn't. Jesus could have taken his time a little longer before going to the garden, but he didn't. He could have come earlier. Matthew 26, Jesus could have easily appealed to his father and called down 12 legions of angels, a legion being 6,000, 12 times 6,000, 72,000 angels but he didn't. Do you see his resolve, his determination? Do you hear John 10? We don't have to go far. We stay in the book of John. John 10, verse 17. Who's in control? For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Even think about on the cross. We're going to get there in a few weeks when he gives up his spirit. So many say, even in that moment, it says, he gave up his spirit, still in control. Interpretation of all these events, Jesus is in complete control of his arrest. It would be enough if we only had these words, Jesus knowing all the things that were coming upon him went forth. But the disciple whom Jesus loves pulls back the curtain in the narrative to further our beholding of his glory. Who is in control? Answer, the one who is asking the question. Have you noticed that Jesus, when he comes forward, he asks the question, whom do you seek? Answer, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, I am he. Response, all of them fall backwards. As many of you may already know, in the original Greek, the word he is not there. I am is what Jesus says. He's no mere man. It was prayed so many times today in our prayer meeting. John has been testifying to that fact his entire gospel. From the opening chapter, Jesus is divine. He testified of this himself, which is why the Jews wanted him dead. Remember, he makes himself out to be God. It's because he is his signs and his words, all in John's gospel, pointed to this great reality. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And here, as one commentator points out, before the flame of arresting torches spoke the voice that Moses heard from the burning bush, I am who I am. 
Do you see the scene? Like the Mount of Transfiguration, the veil pulled back just a hair for his glory to be seen. Alexander McLaren, he was an old commentator, speaks to this truth. He says, thinking and meditating on this passage, I am included to think that here there was for a moment a little rending of the veil of his flesh in a mission of some flash of the brightness that always tabernacled within him and that was enough to prostrate with the strange awe even those rude and insensitive men when he said, I am he, there was something that made them feel this is one before whom violence cowers and abashed and whose presence impurity has to hide its face. Who knows how long they were down? It doesn't tell us, but perhaps Jesus and his disciples could have fled. Yes, but never would Christ leave the path of righteousness he was on for his father, face like a flint towards the cross. There is but one who is in full control in these 11 verses, the Son of God. He is not being arrested by these men. They are not doing this to him. He is initiating. He's asking the questions. He's sovereignly walking in every love, wrought, designed step that has been set for him by his Father. They do not take his life. He lays it down. Even asking again, he says, whom do you seek? And after a second time of asking the crowd who they were seeking, these fearful soldiers stammering in response, as Jordan mentioned last week, Jesus the Nazarene in fear, Jesus makes a request that they immediately accept, according to our text, let these go their way, speaking of his disciples. Well, before we consider Jesus' protection of his people, let's consider an application for all of us in this room. Two kinds of people in this world, those who believe in Christ, are walking with him who love Jesus and those who are unbelieving. Those are the two kinds of people. And so I want to ask you this morning, I want to ask me, whom do you seek? Now, certainly Jesus is asking a very literal question, whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. But I'm asking spiritually, whom, whom do you seek? And we should ask ourselves this question, friend, if you're here and you're, you're not a believer, are you seeking your own kingdom today. Perhaps you're seeking a version of Jesus that you've made up in your own mind because the one in this book, you, like the mob, want to pull off his kingly throne so that you can rule and reign. Or perhaps you're tired and weary from trying to work your way to Jesus. You've heard about him, but it's your map that you want to follow to get to that destination even though he tells us exactly how to come to him, or perhaps you're a teenager. I was a teenager once, and youth tells you that you have time to be serious with Jesus, presuming on time, I just need a little more time, I'm busy, a whole lot of self-reliance on all of those examples. There could be more self-sufficiency. Well, this morning, there is an invitation for you. Whom do you seek? If you seek Jesus the Nazarene, as I just stated, then in the end, it will not go well for you. Not a favorable meeting. 
you will one day see that full blaze in glory and fall back like they do here into an eternity of judgment, punishment. But there is an invitation for you. We could easily go to Isaiah 55 and think about this grand invitation to sinners and there's conditions. Do you thirst? Are you broke, bankrupt of soul? Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It is free. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Friend, if you're, if you're living your own life and trying to find your own way or in defiance to him, you're spending your money on things that don't satisfy. God says, coming to him through Christ, he's the great satisfaction. He says, and delight yourself in abundance, incline your ear and come to me. This is Isaiah 55. Just a few chapters before, we have the suffering servant song. The one who's standing in John 18, he was prophesied a long time ago. And Isaiah 53 is exactly who we're talking about today. Surely our griefs he himself bore, Isaiah 53, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. I wish I could read the whole chapter, but I'll just read verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's where hope is found. That's where satisfaction is found. In John 18, he's standing there. He will go to the cross in a few hours in this narrative, and he will die on behalf of people like you and me sinful humanity and he says this is my son where abundant satisfaction is found so I pray that by faith thirsty broken bankrupt repentance turning to him that you would throw yourself on his abundant mercy you will be satisfied well what about us beloved if 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 I took a poll and myself included it's been a hard week a lot of suffering, trials, sin, struggles, guilt, shame, hurt. I know some of yours, you know some of mine. It's the same invitation, the same man of sorrows, the same Jesus of Nazareth that we come to. He is enough. He's ready to help. He can satisfy us and he can restore the joy of his salvation to us. It's the same invitation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Well, Jesus is in full control of his arrest. Secondly, Jesus protects his own. Look with me there in the narrative. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. This is the second time he asked the question and is responded to. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those you have given me, I lost no one. Now, he's not concerned with his own safety in our narrative. 
He knows death is coming. He knows what awaits him at Jerusalem. In Mark 10, these are his words to his disciples. The son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him. This is happening now in John 18. He talked about it in Mark 10 as it's coming. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise from the dead. This is what awaits him. He knows this. He comes forward. He knows what's going to happen. He's concerned about his people. If we go back to John 17, we enter that throne room. We spent a lot of Sundays with Jesus in that throne room. He prays to the Father. He's in agony. His soul is sorrowful to the point of death. This cup that we will look at soon, it's coming. John doesn't give us this detail but he does give us the details of his prayers in the garden. So if you recall from our sermon series, moments before John 18, he's agonizing in prayer, concerned for the glory of his Father and for his people. He prays for their joy, their sanctification, their unity, their future glory, and their protection. He says in verse 12 of chapter 17, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. That's what he's saying now in John 18. And then for us, in verse 20 of chapter 17, in that wonderful prayer, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So in the midst of holding this heavy cup that's coming in death, pressing down upon him, Again, face like a flint towards Jerusalem to die in the place of sinners. His heart is concerned about those who are around him in that garden, his disciples. John tells us about the good shepherd in John 10. And this is a place where we see, again, the good shepherd caring for his sheep. We've already said they're probably weak and confused men, very brittle They're watching their Lord stand before an arresting mob. They're very vulnerable. And Jesus knows this. There's no haggling. There's no negotiating in our text. Jesus says, you're here for me. Let these go their way. He certainly was protecting them from physical harm. But in protecting them physically, he's also protecting them spiritually. Arrest, trials, persecution we know from history will come for these men. But now they were not ready to receive. Jesus knew their frame like he knows ours. He knew what they could handle. He's their shepherd and he lays down his life for the sheep. He's not a hired hand but the good shepherd that's put himself in this moment and forever between his sheep and their enemies. Let them go. And isn't it the same for us? Can we not draw comfort from this narrative this morning? From beholding the glory of Christ and his keeping us until the end? He too is our good shepherd. And we can be confident as the sheep of his pasture that he will keep us like those disciples in the garden. So are you weak this morning? We've, we've already asked those kinds of questions. How's your week been? Are you barely keeping it together today? Is there a a, a cohort of trouble 
that's coming for you with torches and clubs and weapons to do harm to you. Well, fear not. Jesus, the good shepherd, stands between you and your enemies, and he will bring help. He, he, he will not forsake us. Like in that garden, his promises, his words will mow down the cohort in front of us. Well, it matters what we sing. We want to sing truth, and this morning we selected several songs that speak about this being kept and protected as his people when things get hard. We just sing it, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. Doesn't that describe all of us from time to time? But it is Jesus, the good shepherd, that holds us fast. We sing, yet not I. Think about this, these verses. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. We sang that when we opened our service. What am I saying? What I'm saying is when you hear Jesus in John 18 utter those words of love towards his people, let these go their way, be reminded of his big keeping you forever all the way to the end. You will see his face in paradise forever love for you. Jesus loves his flock and he protects his people. So we've considered him as being in full control and protecting his people, and now in our narrative, the last two verses, 10 and 11, Jesus willingly obeys his father. Simon Peter then, verse 10, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the father has given me, shall I not drink it? Well, in these final verses in our account, Peter is named by John as the one who swung on Malchus and Malchus' name. Both of them are named for the, for the first time. The other writers don't name them. And we can be assured, I was talking to Rick before the service, that he was aiming for his head. He wasn't aiming for his ear. We don't know what happened, but he cut his ear off. And then in other accounts, Jesus puts his ear back on. Pretty big display of power and mercy, mind you. But what should be clear to us about his rebuke to Peter is that the gospel will not spread with violence. It doesn't go out that way. We know from 1 Corinthians 1 that the world did not know God through wisdom and it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's not going to spread with violence. Consider the words of Jesus we should drink deeply of these. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Our Lord in this narrative full of resolve and all knowledge about what is to take place has set in motion what he spoke about on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and Moses. Do you remember he said they talked about his departure which was about to, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That was Luke 9. His departure, the exodus the true and better exodus, the cross death, 
where he would bring his people from the domain of darkness into his kingdom, the cross death where he would bring his people through God's torrential wrath and place them safely on the other side. He knows this is coming. This cup is the cup of God's wrath and judgment in the Old Testament. It speaks about a cup, a cup of judgment, a cup of wrath. Jesus would have known his Bible. He knows what's awaiting him, which is why he prayed in agony in that garden right before his arrest. Physical suffering, of course. People were crucified along with Jesus. But the suffering that he would endure, being forsaken by his father, absorbing the wrath of a holy God, the bitter cup to come. And he wrestled with that in the garden. And finally, your will be done. We hear in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. For though he has agonized over this cup that we hear about, there's great resolve we see in chapter 18 to humbly obey the Father's will, the Father's will with glad-hearted submission. He will drink it. He will drink it all. Every last molecule of wrath, there will be nothing left in that cup. In just a few more hours, we know the sky will turn completely dark, forsaken by his own Father. Holy God, who cannot look upon sin with his eyes, tells us in the Old Testament, and he will absorb that wrath and stand in the place of sinners. And we sang it earlier, he will, by his sacrifice and resurrection, bring many sons to glory. The backdrop of darkness will not get the final say. We know that the true light and risen glory will come and the darkness will not be able to comprehend it. It's as if in the first garden, the first Adam hid when God asked, where are you? Remember, he hid. But in Gethsemane, this garden, the father calls out to the second Adam, Jesus, where are you? And he answers, here I am. He loved his father and he never wavered from obedience. Matthew Henry, that great old Puritan commentator, says he grounds his own willingness upon the Father's will and resolves the matter wholly unto that. That's his resolve. And this is what John's been testifying about, right? His whole gospel, this voluntary subordination of Jesus. He doesn't use the word sent, S-E-N-T, in John 18, but he uses it all through his gospel to say the same kinds of things, and we should be able to hear it in the background as we read John 18. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work, John 4:34. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, John 6, 39. And just one more. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17, 3. This is just a small portion of what John has been saying throughout his gospel about Christ's willing submission. His voluntary subordination to the Father's will to come and vindicate the Father's holy name while rescuing the people that the Father gave him. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? He drinks it willingly. 
And this is the climax of the arrest narrative. Like the first domino, John 18, it just keeps going. We'll see it in the rest of John 18 and 19. What about Peter? Peter will eventually understand all this too. Peter was there. He cut off Malchus's ear. In a few verses in front of us, Peter will also deny or betray Christ. Very much like Judas, though, though different, but very much deny him. Instead of I am, when Peter is asked questions by all those people, he says, I am not, basically. The difference between him and Judas, Peter's brokenness, is the godly sorrow kind that comes with repentance and in humility. We'll see in John 21 that Peter himself is restored. But he'll finally understand the cup that Jesus drank. The Holy Spirit will ensure it. As Rick told me before the sermon, he said the Holy Spirit will get him and ensure it. And from his mouth in the book of Acts, Peter will see the cross the way God sees the cross. Acts 2, chapter 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over, do you have categories for this? By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It wasn't Judas or the soldiers who arrested Jesus. It was God. John wants us to know that Jesus was in full control of his arrest and he wants us to know that he is for his people. He protects his people. He keeps them with his gospel love purchased at the cross and he wants us to know that Jesus gives himself willingly to the redemptive purposes of his father it is true is it not true that we could say Jesus was arrested by God so that we could be arrested by God happy bond servants yes Lord arrested by God through faith in Christ so if you've been arrested by him I pray Today, that if you've not submitted yourself by faith to the king, there's a way humbly. They fell back, falling forward in humility and repentance to the king of kings, that you would do so today. There is an overflowing cup of salvation for you, Psalm 116, 13, because the cup of wrath that Jesus drank on your behalf. Well, let's pray together.